Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tegal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Claire Thompson, CEO and founder of Agility Health Tech. Today's guest is slightly left field from our typical contract service clients, but is one of the most interesting people I've come across in the sector. An award-winning pharmaceutical scientist, Claire has over 20 years experience in developing pharma products in global companies, virtual biotechs and CROs. Today, Claire consults healthcare and tech companies ranging from spin-outs to multinational companies on how to fast-track their technology to market. She's worked for Pfizer, GSK, Oxford Pharma Science and the Royal Pharma Society, amongst others. Hey Claire, welcome to the show. Hi, Roman. A bit left field. I love it. I'm going to add that to my bio. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you've seen that as a compliment. In oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. And just, just to start off with Claire, it'd be great if you can kind of tell the listeners a little bit about you and what you do at Agility Health Tech. Yeah, sure. So we're, we're a consulting and communications firm. Um, we help our clients tiny to multinational in, in three main areas. They all begin with S. I love a bit of alliteration. So the first one is in their science. We help them to turn their ideas into products, get those products into the clinic or onto the market. Now, the second area love is it. in strategy. There's no point in having a great idea if you can't get any money behind it. So we position them for funding, uh, for investment, for growth. So some of our smaller clients, they're looking at that early stage investments. So we work with them on the grant funds or, uh, or grant fund applications or investor briefing documents, business cases, etc. For some of the larger clients, so some of the CDMOs that we work with, they're looking at developing new services. So we're looking at what's the landscape and the marketplace that they're trying to get into. What's the gap in the market and the market for the gap and how can they sell that into the management? And the, the last S is storytelling. We help our clients to tell their story from the very start. Now, I'm a, I'm a scientist. I'm a biochemist by training. I've probably worked with 10,000 scientists over the years. Very few of them would argue with me when I say we are terrible at telling people the true impact of what we do. So we do that from the very start, either in writing uh, technical reports, regulatory documents, even ghostwriting uh, articles for them, through to the strategic piece of positioning their company. So uh, investor briefing documents, business cases, etc. Um, and uh, the last piece is the more uh, public-facing and commercial-facing aspect of putting together the marketing materials, their full-service PR, uh, website copy, uh, thought leadership pieces, etc. So it's, we're always thinking about who's the audience, what are the key messages that you need to get across to them, and what's the best way to do it. Love it. I love the, uh, the, the the succinct summary of, of the business there. And, and tell us, how, how did you end up in the sector and kind of your journey to, to where you are today? Because you've got a really varied and interesting kind of career history in the, in the pharma and biotech space. If you mind sharing, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So as I said, I'm a studied biochemistry to begin with, uh, then did a PhD in pharmacy um, at the University of Nottingham. And uh, that was my PhD was sponsored by what was then Smith Klein Beecham. Um, so that was it. I was hooked from there. You know, I, I really got an, an energy and enthusiasm for um, developing new drug molecules. Uh, but then I was headhunted and went to Pfizer uh, and then headhunted again from Pfizer and went to GSK. Um, and then 
you know, there were several rounds of um, of redundancies, uh, as there have been over the last, say, 10 to 15 years. And it got to the the, the point where things were stagnating. And uh, I was I was fortunately never in a position where my, my job was going to go. But I was in my early 30s. This is giving my age away. Although you've already said that I've been in the organization. I've been in the industry for 20 years. So folk know how old, <laughs> very old I am. Um, and I, I, I wanted a change. Uh, I wanted to um, look at something that was, I guess, more commercial. Um, so I looked out into my, my network. I got in touch with some people that I, I trusted, and I, and I ended up with a, a role in molecular profiles, which then became Juniper and is now part of uh, Catalan. So half of my role was developing new technical services and leading a team, and the other half was, um, was more commercial, so it was more uh, business development. Um, I then got an opportunity a few la- years later to work in a, a virtual pharma company. So uh, as head of R&D there, so we were bringing in uh, licensing technologies from other organizations or universities, applying those to known uh, to drugs with known problems um, and commercializing those. So I'd gone in the space of a couple of years from GSK, which had 100,000 people, from Electra Profiles, which had fewer than 50 people, to a virtual company where I was employee number four. <laughs> and then after uh, a few years of that, I thought, you know what, I've uh, I've acquired a few skills along the way. Um, I, I quite fancy setting up on my own, and uh, uh, that was spurred on by some connections again within my network who said, we need this piece of work done, we'd like you to do it, but you'll need to set up a, a company to do so in order to consult. So that was almost eight years ago, um, and we've grown significantly from then. Our service base has grown significantly from then, and our client base, thankfully, has as well. And uh, I'm loving it. Good for you. And, I'm, uh, and I have to ask, how, how have you found the experience of working for, you know, some of the biggest companies in the sector to the virtual to then actually setting up your own shop? I mean, you've got that kind of wonderful variety to your experience so did, I'm sure there are advantages and disadvantages to all of them but be interesting to kind of compare and contrast particularly you know with respect to the kind of pharma and biotech industry that we work in. Yeah sure I mean the large companies um, you do have uh, scope to move into different roles but they are still very siloed uh, and they move quite slowly uh, in comparison to the, the small biotechs um, uh, you know I've, I've loved aspects of, of every role that I've done. I've also hated aspects of every role that I've, that I've, that I've done. I'd be lying if I said I, I, I didn't. But I think that's that's how you develop and, and how you, you grow. The difference from being an employee and an employer, um, there's nothing that quite focuses the mind, uh, like knowing that you've got wages to pay, you've got people that depend on you, um, and you've got a duty of care to them. Um, uh, uh, but people are are the best part of my job and always have been. Love it. And something you said um, in your kind of uh, background was, I think it was the second S in your uh, your description was around um, helping companies invest and in, you know, get funding, uh, kind of early phase companies. How, just out of curiosity, how has that been impacted with COVID? Are you seeing kind of drying up of funding or anything like that? 
Uh, yes and no. So uh, early stage funding, it's it's very. I think it's very difficult at the moment. So some of our our clients are at that kind of um, seed funding, Series A funding stage, um, and there just isn't enough liquidity with that phase at the moment. You know, investors aren't able to access the pool of money that they did before, and therefore it's difficult. And and I I think actually we're going to see a major impact we're going to see the impact of that in say 12 to 18 months in uh, in, in pipelines uh, and also in, in clinical trials um later stages and depending on on um the indications that you're looking at or the technologies that you're looking at it gets a bit easier but you know we've got a, a couple of clients that are in um, diagnostics and they've pivoted at the perfect time and repurposed those uh, the kits for TB, diagnosed TB rapidly, repurposed those for uh, coronavirus. So the one I'm, I'm talking about at the moment is uh, Microsense DX, and they've just seen their business go through the roof. So it's great. It's great for some. Uh, others are are struggling, but you know those who are led by great people and have great ideas will will get there in the end. But I'm a massive fan of um, never letting a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just for people that don't know who you are, you're based kind of between kind of London and Cambridge. And uh, for people that don't know that part of the world and its kind of significance within uh, kind of the, the industry, do you mind kind of describing the kind of vibrancy of that part of, of the UK and, and kind of the activity within biotech in particular that, that you see kind of where you are in the world? It's absolutely phenomenal. So uh, Cambridge is a is a huge hub, as uh, as is your area in, in Cambridge and Boston. Um, mm-hmm. Biotechs, uh, medtech, diagnostics, even you know things like AI. It's it's flourishing and it will continue to do. So it's a real hub in Cambridge. Um, London, we're seeing you know, quite a, a medtech cluster there as well. Even digital health, but. I'd like to bring Stevenage into the, the discussion here. You know, it's it's often forgotten, but it's Europe's biggest hub for cell and gene therapy. So, um, wow. I mean, it's a, yeah, it, it's fantastic what they're doing there in, in terms of filling and flowing that pipeline. There's a cell and gene therapy manufacturing centre there. So it really is the place to be for cell and gene therapy uh, in Europe. Love it. Did not know that at all. So that's uh, <laughs> that's a learning for me straight away and <laughs> speaking with you today. So um and I just wanted to actually rewind back to I, I actually first saw and met you and you were speaking um at Farmer Integrates in, in London and, and for those who've never seen Claire, she I'm gonna describe her, she's a very, very cool and stylish looking lady and in, in the sea of uh kind of middle aged men. It, this kind of typical conference you kind of stood up and stood out like you know like a mile and it was uh, very impressive to see you speaking so I'm kind of curious to know kind of what what's it been like you know being a woman in, in an industry that's still largely dominated by by guys is and how, how have you kind of found that experience and uh, what things have worked for you because you've been able to carve a really impressive career for yourself so uh, kind of any any tips and pieces of advice for uh, for the other females in the sector would be probably hugely appreciated. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've uh, I've been described as looking like a lit match with fabulous shoes. Uh, so that people remember my <laughs> hair or my shoes, not necessarily my name, but that's absolutely fine. Um, for 
most of my career, I have been uh, either the only one or one of very few women in the room. And I'm fine with that. It means that people will probably remember my name. They will probably remember uh, what I say. But, you know, I understand that there are there are quite a few women and also men who aren't um, as confident uh, about that. I think there's a lot of this is about having confidence in your competence. Um, for me, it's... I guess it's about making yourself memorable. What do you want to be? What can you be memorable for? Uh, as I said, it's my hair, my shoes. You'll always see me in a bright colour. So I'll have a red dress or a green dress or a bright blue dress so that I will um, stand out amongst the grey suits and the snowy white peaks. Um, so it's it, it's part of the, the armour, I guess. It's it's part of the uniform that, that I wear. It draws uh, attention to me. And as I said, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, you've got to back that up with um, what you say as well. Um, yeah. But and I, I think from a from a persona perspective, I'm 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 drawn to people who are um, I call them my ace people, which is not great with my accent, but they're A is authentic, C is credible, and E is engaging. So I you know I I think you're being quite humble in what you're saying, Roman. Um, maybe you don't stand out in the crowd, but you're certainly one of my ace people. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you're going to add that I to mean, your I bio. I used to have nice... <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did used to have nice kind of spiky cool hair, but my team keep reminding me that it's disappearing by the day. So my my differential is, is disappearing. And um, and I and just kind of... Um, I, love, I love seeing... Um, you put pictures of your uh, your daughter and the kind of things she's doing in lo- in lockdown on LinkedIn, and I I class that as being a very authentic part of of your persona and, and yeah. how you come across. And um, I'm just curious to know kind of how are the leaders in the in the sector, whether they be you know founders or CEOs or you know just you know um, in senior positions within businesses in farm and biotech, can better leverage social and and actually be a little bit more personable and authentic because it seems to work really well for you and I mean and personally it works well for me and I'm just yeah it'd be interested to find get your views on on how others can can leverage particularly LinkedIn I would say more than anything else mm-hmm. yeah and you know for me this this business that that we're in and, and when I go and give talks at events to either you know at young women or at universities or more professional events a question I ask is, what, what is this industry that we're in? And, and I get, you know, it's it's pharma, it's biotech, it's uh, it's outsourcing. It's not. This is a people business. People work with people. People buy from people. And I think now more than any at any other time, what we're seeing from you know Zoom meetings and Teams meetings is, you see the cat on the keyboard. For me, you'll see my little one coming in and jumping on my knee. You'll see the two Labradors messing about with a toy in the background. You see the real personal side of people. You see beyond the professional. Um, and and I want people to be able to see me as a, as a person, to see that authenticity and, and to know uh, a bit more uh, about me. Because, you know, we don't just talk work all the time. You engage with people, you believe in people, and, and, and that's what you put your, your efforts, your energy, and your money towards. Um, so I would, I would encourage people to do more of that, you know, be, be your authentic self. Um, 
share a bit more about the things that you care about. Absolutely spot on. I could. But if I could you could, if you could do more. less of your your running photographs, less of your lycra, that would be lovely as well, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> you, what you, you love it? What are you lying about? I, I, I know, <laughs> I know. I'm just jealous because I can't get out running at the minute because um, I've got a bad knee. And you, you are an entrepreneur in residence at Cambridge University at the minute, which sounds incredibly impressive. What does that actually mean? Uh, well, what that means is that um, once or twice a month, I will go and meet with a, a selection of academics who've got uh, a great idea, a great technology, and need some advice on where to take that next. So um, I'll, I'll talk to them about what they're doing, uh, what the potential is um, for that technology or that idea, what uh, the next kind of killer experiments would be, where they might be able to get grants funding from, um, what other intellectual property they might be able to get from it, and uh, who they might be able to either partner with or sell this to in the future. So I guess it's an extension of what I do in my, my business life. But I never know what I'm going to be discussing. So I can be meeting someone from uh, zoology or from the veterinary department or chemistry. So it's really exciting because I went blind on all of these um, and then have to think on my feet. And I love it. I love it. I love being surrounded by people who are actually much cleverer than I am. <laughs> but probably but at the same time, massively respect the perspective that you bring that kind of commercial entrepreneurial perspective which i think is uh, particularly of value to people in an academic environment i think just a, a kind of seeing things from a different side i think is probably i imagine is the is the great value you bring to that to that role yeah it's, i mean it's easier from the outside looking in to you know to to get that perspective on it but I, do you know what Ramon? I, I think it's something that sport has taught me i'm a a footballer um or well, I'm a retired footballer I still like to kick the, the ball around um <laughs> as you know from from social media um yeah. but you know I've I've always played football and my, my father taught me when I was when I was five he said that you know the difference between an average footballer and an exceptional footballer is their ability look, to look up from the ball they know where the ball is it's at their feet they look up and they think okay so where am, where am I playing the, this next pass? Who's running towards me? So where are the opposition? Um, how, how do I get that ball to them? So picking out the next pass, communicating to, to your team and thinking you know, strategically about how you're going to win the game. And if things don't go well, how are you going to pick your head up? How are you going to encourage your teammates? So sport is, has played a very big part in my life and a very big part in my, my business life. And I think that's why I'm always thinking I'm always scenario planning. I'm always thinking about two steps ahead. What if we lose the ball here? What are we going to do? Um, so that's something that um, I encourage my my team to to think about as well. So yeah, they uh, <laughs> I love sporting analogies. I'm sure it bores them to death. And and you were uh, and and for our American listeners, football meaning soccer, which yeah. I'm still getting <laughs> still getting used to. Um, you weren't just an average footballer, right? You were a top-class footballer. Yeah, I was all right <laughs> you, in my day, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And Claire's underplaying how how uh, how talented she was, but and actually, I was going to ask you about kind of um, I was going to mention football and what things from from a dedication perspective. Because one thing I I often see in really successful people in my business is people that have demonstrated a dedication to a particular craft, whether it be sport or a musical instrument or a language or something like that, often have a mindset of um, that's really, really a value in a in a business environment. It, it just demonstrates that they can actually stick at something and have the discipline to just continuously get better. Have you, have you found that your um, experience of being, you know, very, very good footballer and the dedication, I imagine, that goes into that has really set you up and kind of you've, you've been able to bring uh, some of that um, attitude towards towards your kind of working life as well. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And I, I think you can see that in others. You can see people who have played um, team sport at a, at a reasonably high level. You can tell by how they interact with other people. So they're trying to bring people with them, um, you know, spotting those who um, perhaps – uh, aren't doing so well and thinking about how to, how to pick them up um you know always how you know how they're going to win that game starting with an end in mind and thinking how are we going to achieve this but achieve it together so I completely agree you can see it in people people who've been dedicated to do a sport work within a team or or just a, a craft yeah I completely agree you're listening to molecule to market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. And, and for anyone that's listening, they're probably thinking, oh, Claire's had the, the perfect career and hasn't made any mistakes. But I know firsthand, not about you, but myself and most people, we make lots of mistakes as we kind of go along. So are there any are there any kind of mistakes or real learnings that you've had along along the way? I'm sure that there are many. And, and also, is there anything that you continuously have to work at? that you know whether it's a competence or a way of you know style or anything like that that you're always conscious of simply getting better at uh, yeah I should listen to myself more um you know I um at the at the minute or even you know, over the last couple of months um so some folk within my team haven't been able to work the way they have before because they've got um, you know, caring responsibilities, their kids are off, they've got to look after people and therefore they're having to reduce their hours, right? Now, and, and that has stressed them out quite a lot. But I said at the very beginning that well-being is more important than workload and it's fine for people to reduce their hours. We're not reducing anybody's salaries, that's not happening. But it's it's fine for them to do that and we will get through this. We'll get through this as a team. And we've all supported each other and we've, we've, all, we've all got through this. Um, my, so I'm, I'm being very careful to look after everybody else's well-being. I'm terrible at self-care. I always go to the bottom of the list. So really I could always do with listening to myself a bit more. So I'm becoming much more aware of when I go up my stress curve. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've spent quite a bit of time over the last few months trying to flatten the the stress curves within my team within clients and you see it goodness me um you, you do see it you know as a like a sign you sort of wave um 
but I'm becoming acutely aware of when I am going up the stress curve and what I need to do about it. Love that. I think that's, that's good, good insight into some of the real life challenges of running a business that not everyone, that not everyone sees. And, and if, if you could go back, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? Oh, that's a brilliant question. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's a really good question. So I, I think even in my so you, you 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 see me now, you hear me now speak, and I, I, I do come across as, as very confident and very comfortable in my own skin. Um, my early mid twenties, I, I I wasn't, you know. So I, I guess you know, being gay, even twenty years ago, was still still frowned upon to a certain extent, still frowned upon to certain demographics of, of people. So. I, I wasn't really out to many people. I wasn't as comfortable in my own skin as I am now. And uh, I, th- I think I would give myself the advice that my sister has given me recently, which is uh, what other people think of you is none of your business. <laughs> and just be, you, just, just, just be true to yourself. Be kind. Yeah. And if people, if yeah, people yeah. don't like well, you, if people don't like you for who you are, they're not your people and move on. Oh, I mean, that's, that's great advice. Great advice, particularly at this particular type and, you know, time in the world where the world's a bit of a crazy place. And I think that's uh, that kind of sense of inner confidence and not being too worried about what other people think, I think is a, a really on point message. And, and how would, how would your, how would your sister or maybe your wife describe you? <laughs> <laughs> because oh, I wonder if your sister and I wonder if your sister and wife would describe you in different ways. I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. My sister hasn't learned to live with me constantly in lockdown for the last uh, <laughs> um my my sister, uh, I'm pausing at saying this because it's embarrassing and I I don't really want I don't really want to say it, but my sister would call me inspirational. Mm-hmm. Um nothing wrong with that. Which is which is lovely. And my, what would my wife call me? Do you know what? So, so I, I think I'm, I'm a bit of a sinusoidal wave. I go uh, up and down. I'm either um, uh, in, a, in a, a, a frenzy of joy or I'm furious. I'm, I'm ecstatic or I'm exhausted. And my, so that's the kind of the sinusoidal wave pattern that I go through. My wife, I always describe her as my spirit level. She's brilliant. <laughs> you know, she just cuts through the, the nonsense. And there's, there's a, a lot of times where I'm worried about something and, I, and I'll talk to her about it. And she'll say, you know, she'll come up with the solution. Well, it's just, just this. Is, is that what it is? And, and it's, it's awesome. So while I've been chewing on this for ages and, and she'll come up with this, this simple solution to it or she will say to me are you the only one that cares about this or is worried about this and quite often she's right um so she probably described me as hard work <laughs> and uh, that i use i use an excessive number of words but uh i i would say that that's the that's the Irish in me. yeah <laughs> i can get her in she can answer answer the question for herself 
<laughs> no, no, it's 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 more fun putting guests on the spot and asking and trying to put themselves in their shoes because it yeah. is a very hard question uh, to answer. And and then I've got another five minutes or so with you, and I just wanted to kind of shift gears and talk about the kind of sector, uh, you know, what's going on at the minute. And one of the things that you said, I think, right at the start, in terms of your your current role, is you you advise CMOs and CDMOs and contract services companies. Are, are there particular, are there any trends or patterns that you're seeing and not, not, not necessarily COVID specific, but um, kind of service capability areas, anything that you're seeing within the contract services space that you would almost class as a, a trend or a shift in, in what's going on? Yeah. From an outsourcing perspective, I mean, we've seen that increase. You, you probably echo this. We've seen that increase um, in double-digit figures probably over the last five, ten years, and I think that is going to continue. Certainly with some of my biotech biotech clients, I'm seeing that there's you know, parallel manufacturers to reduce the risks, you know, so that they can still meet the pre-clinical timelines or the clinical timelines, whatever milestone that might be, to ensure that they can get batches to that within parallel manufacturers uh, in different geographies or with different companies. So I think we're going we're gonna to see... Um, an uptick in outsourcing as a direct result of COVID-19. We may see that coming back down again, but uh, you know, outsourcing is going to continue. Um, we may well see that some of that moves away from Asia and will come back to maybe the US or, or to Europe, but I think that's probably to a, a smaller extent. Yeah. Just on that last point, just to, uh, uh, that parallel manufacture, um, and this is just more of a out of curiosity so some of the clients that you have would they literally make two duplicate batch production effectively and make exactly the same yes. or would would they have two yeah okay so they wouldn't just have two suppliers or vendors no the two, kind of two vendors two vendors running in parallel making this the same wow. scale batches for uh, that desired study because one of them may have to go wow, offline uh yeah um shipping supply chains may get in the way yeah that's fascinating and, mm. and presumably obviously there's a there's a significant cost associated with that as well and but there the there is oh there there absolutely is but mm-hmm. if you think about inflection points so value inflection points for mm-hmm. those companies they don't meet that milestone it could be end game that's it you know so it's, wow, uh, that's so interesting. It's it's not something I've come across actually, which I've just that's why I've kind of stopped on that point and found it really interesting. Um, but it just shows you the kind of the that as you said the inflection point and the potential risk of not meeting a milestone is is ultimately can be you know to the failure of some of these businesses that they would actually go ahead and, and effectively dual manufacture to <laughs> to just minimize the risk and mitigate the risk of of not meeting clinical uh, trials or, or yeah. whatever that they're, they're working on it's fascinating um yeah and i'm, I'm and hearing any, any i'm hearing kind of... conflicting pieces on uh, on clinical trials so um some are saying that the, the clinical trial application pro- process is becoming shorter and more streamlined so you're getting a more uh, rapid turnaround and, and rapid decisions so that you can go into clinic um but on the uh, on the converse of that is that recruitment times are longer, so um, I'm I'm waiting to see what happens from that perspective because there's no it, it's all very well that we can speed up the um, the approval process, but if we can't get clinical trials started 
uh, as promptly, then it, it really does it becomes a, a block in that chain. And ultimately, yeah. it's gonna and I'm gonna slow down car, um, molecules getting to market. Yeah, exactly. And I'm gonna put you on the spot here, and you might not be able to answer this question, but I just if I was gonna ask anyone, it would probably be you. <laughs> if there there are a lot of obviously COVID vaccines in development. Actually, if you look at the mainstream media, there's this timeline of you know twelve to eighteen months to bring one to market. Just based on your experience, is it is that a realistic timeline for a multi-billion <laughs> quantities of a vaccine or do you are you of the opinion based on what you've seen in your experience that it would take longer or is there any way it could be a shorter timeline uh, and if you can't answer that it's absolutely fine it's just uh, I, I suspect you've got such varied experience that you could have a view on it sure sure um so with a with a tailing wind and with everything being being a success so if this is a success in clinical trials in that it's safe and it's effective and the manufacturing facilities are built and i know that the gates foundation have you know put billions into this to ensure that there are factories to do it then 18 months um still sounds um quite quick but possibly so if everybody gets it behind it and there's success in in all cases in 18 months to have that first dose ready then yes but that doesn't mean that that vaccine is going to be available for everyone it may be just you know the frontline healthcare workers well, probably should be just the frontline healthcare workers that get it first it won't necessarily be available to the general population of every country um it, there was a brilliant article uh was it the wall street journal or financial times it might have been the wall street journal about a month ago, which talked about the history of vaccines and the the timelines of getting vaccines to market. It's phenomenal. Uh, and it talked about even things, you know, vaccine for HIV still isn't ready. And that's 30 years down the line. And things like that are, it's, it's terrifying to think that we'd have to wait five, even 10 years for a vaccine for the coronavirus. But so in short, 18 months, very ambitious but possibly doable if everything is a success. Yeah, if everything lines up and everything goes to plan yeah. and there's no hiccups, which, yeah. which unfortunately my, my history of you know 20 years or so in this sector tells me that no drug development programme is ever that smooth. <laughs> is ever that smooth. Yeah, and that relies, uh, on, relies, on these, relies on these, uh, you know, the, the first vaccines that have gone into clinical trials actually working. We've got tens, if not a hundred clinical trials on, on that have started at the moment so the clock's ticking i suppose what i'm seeing yeah i suppose the one huge advantage that i'm seeing is um certainly i see it in from the fda in the us is a much more um fast-tracked regulatory framework obviously given how pressing the need is so that that may help speed up things up that you're not necessarily going through the same uh you know kind of pretty slow processed to you know to getting things approved so that can that can certainly be a factor that might be able to speed things up but yeah fingers crossed we we have something in that timeline and last couple of questions before we before we finish so are there any just out of curiosity are there any kind of uh, causes or uh kind of charitable things that you you support you strike me as someone that might support many causes that's why i'm asking you the question yeah <laughs> and this is in... your chance to plug them in <laughs> oh thank you it's perfect timing 
Um, so we donate 1% of our revenues, not profits, but revenues every year to, to, to things that we are passionate about. Um, and one of them is, um, is girls and women in football. Uh, so at the moment we've got four teams that we support in the UK. So one is close by. We've got one in Gateshead, not too far from, from where you are. Uh, in fact, we've got two close by and uh, one kind of in the, in the middle of the country. And uh, we'll be making an announcement in the next couple of weeks um, about uh, an actual grant scheme that we're starting. Uh, which will formalise this because at the the moment it's uh, it's been a, about me finding um, teams on Twitter who are going. Can anybody sponsor our under nines? <laughs> Can anybody sponsor our under eleven girls? So uh, as I've already said, um, playing football, sorry, soccer, um, has been a massive part of, of my my life and and the way I work, and um, I think it's it's a it's it's a great team environment. Uh, and certainly in the UK, we're seeing girls stopping playing sport about the age of 12. Um, and if that's just down to um, kit uh, or coaching staff, you know, the, the lack of those, then anything that I can do and we can do as a, as a, as a company to keep that going, we absolutely will. Um, also, um, you know, women in science, uh, we haven't got anything formal with that at the moment, but I you know, speak at loads of uh, events. Uh, and uh, I'm chair of the Women in Science and Education piece. That's um, uh, FIP, so that's the International uh, Federation of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. They started that as a campaign last year. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a phenomenal thing to be part of, never mind chair. And with various other things coming through uh, the, the pipeline as well. Uh, these are all the things that uh, buzz around in my head. I just need to get them down on paper and, and make them formal. But yes, watch this space in the next couple of weeks when we're going to be launching our, our grant. In fact, oh, when is this going? When's this great. going out? I might even be able to tell you more about it. <laughs> Uh, probably in the next six weeks from time of recording it takes to get to get these things out onto the market so we'll okay. be in that's fine tell you what I will tell you about July. it I will tell you we'll have launched it by then okay so uh, we're launching this year it's an exclusive this is it is exclusive. exclusive yeah <laughs> it's it's called it's called gift grants girls and football teams we've even got a lovely logo uh, so we have got grants of up to 500 pounds uh, that teams can uh, apply for and it can be uh, for anything at all it can be for uh, travel uh, kits uh, balls coaching anything but it has to support girls and women's football so we'll be putting that out before the end of June uh, we unfortunately haven't got 50,000 pounds to put towards this but uh, as we grow that will grow so we've got a limited amount of grants available and I'm just so delighted to be able to to do this. Love it. And so how about I make a £500 donation as well? To oh, you're a legend. So um, I, I, I'm a massive fan of football and I've played football my entire life. And I, especially living in the US and seeing the kind of, the, the 
at very junior level girls playing football and how good some of these players are and how big it is over here. And my best friend's daughter is an excellent footballer. I think she's 10 years old. So um, I love it. And so, yeah, you've got a commitment of 500 quid from, from me uh, and my wife personally for, for that because I think it's a, it's a great cause. And uh, um, so, yeah, so hopefully by the time this goes live, that'll be live and you might have raised a bit more cash to help some of these teams across across the country. So That's marvellous. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. No worries. And then last couple of questions. Um, if you could make one change to the sector, what, what would it be? Oh, goodness. I think we still lose, we still use a lot of jargon. It come back, comes back to the storytelling piece. Um, and patience, the public, uh, from, I mean, the pharma sector is only behind oil and gas in uh, in the most hated sector in the world, which is just absolutely bonkers. Because, I mean, we set out to make medicines to, you know, help people get on with their lives, feel better, cure diseases. So it makes no sense to me whatsoever why people will hate it, but they hate it because it seems like it's a black box. We're talking a lot of jargon it's very high but i would i would like to get rid of the jargon and demystify what's going on in the in the industry and talk more about what we do you know i, I do stuff in, in the media to do this so um i've done various television programs to talk about how drugs work and how don't how they don't work i've done some stuff on experiments with jelly oh <laughs> i digress but i think to be to be more open and in explaining what we do and how we do it and why it costs so much to develop new drugs. So that's the one thing that I would change. I think that's a great thing. I think, and, and interesting enough, I do think this sector has an opportunity right now to completely rebrand itself and rebuild its reputation with, with the impact of COVID. And if it can, we can see better collaboration in the sector to come up with um, a vaccine that ultimately saves the world quite you know quite literally then i think i think the that'll be a good feather in the cap of the sector in, in rebuilding Agreed. Its, uh, now, its now is the time so, now is the time absolutely absolutely all right claire honestly i could speak to you all day i said at the start of of the interview that you were one of the most interesting people i've come across and now you're even more interesting now having spent the last 40 minutes or so um speaking to you so thank you very much for taking the time to be on molecule to market oh a pleasure i'm glad i didn't didn't disappoint no never do hi again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.